Hello again, loyal listeners, and know that I am extremely grateful for your return. I had expected there to be some controversy around the release of this series. I had expected angry denunciations and enraged letters from concerned citizens. I had not expected the humor it seems to have generated in some quarters, and I have found myself not cast out from the community of history scholars because of my daring, but because of ridicule. A number of people, mainly enthusiastic amateurs of the history of the ignition, as the professionals have not lowered themselves to comment, have hastened to provide evidence that the man I have met could not possibly be Ciro Orente. Such an overwhelming flood of evidence may have deterred me were it not for the fact that none of them agree. One clearly states that Ciro Orente is counted amongst those who died in the ignition, another that he was put on trial in Kassire and died some eleven years ago. Another claims he is languishing in the darkest cells of the kingdom of Iviosto, their great king not taken kindly to his espionage. This particular writer seemed to go into great detail to the torture suffered by Orente. I do feel the need to point out, again, that I do not simply believe Orente, but I am merely presenting his story and doing what research I can to add to it in terms of context. However, our story is not solely concerned with Ciro Orente, despite him being the one who provided most of this evidence. There is another figure whose diary Orente claimed to possess, which, if genuine, would support his story. The fact that this woman is a person of some notoriety adds a little more interest and is a name well known to those who have studied the history of the infected territory. Captain Chloe Vasquez. Extract from the Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 15th, 1886. We finally arrived at the city today. Corbin had loomed large on the horizon for several days, and even after all this time, it is an amazing sight. When we had spotted the city, it had been such a relief, as it meant that really we were safe. As lackadaisical as the three empires are to protecting the area, they take it as a point of prestige that if you can see the city, you probably won't get your throat slit in your sleep. Most of the territory between the city and the border is just lawless now. People reach the border and think themselves safe, only to be set upon by these criminals. Seeing since the fall of the Arellan Empire, this land technically is not owned by anyone, no one feels the need to police it. There are, however, a few who expect taxes from the people who live here. They typically don't bother the Legion, as they're cowards, easily put off by the most basic resistance. When Yulian had asked me to go into the city, I had agreed, knowing that I could travel with some of the refugees, giving them a little bit of protection. I saw bandits in the mountain trailing us, but they never came near. Yulian still refuses my request to lead a few legionnaires against the bandits, as he insists on maintaining the purity of our mission, and he already thinks I'm far too involved with local politics. Anything that takes us away from fighting the zombies is anathema to him. I can see his point, as it could potentially upset some of the countries who have always been nervous about our unusual status. Still, I'd risk that to save lives. I'm still shocked that Yulian chose me to speak at the Congress. It's true that I'm one of the few legionnaires that people have heard of, but... Kings aren't going to want to listen to someone who deposed one. Yulian hopes that we can get more support from the great powers. Just a few thousand soldiers for six months, and we could do so much good. The only ones offering now are the Henerians. But... 
Yulian won't use their troops for fear of upsetting everyone else. He also thinks I need some time off the border because of the injury. He thinks I'm getting slow or careless or something. I was surprised at how much respect is still shown to the legionnaires in the city. The four of us were constantly being stopped by people thanking us for saving them, their brother, their daughter. People give us food and press money into our hands for the cause. We used to refuse, but people were so insistent. The Mariacan soldiers at the city wall didn't like the look of our weapons, and I had to remind them that we can carry them anywhere, one of the few perks of being in the Legion. It is an odd thing that practically every day for the last 19 years I have carried a weapon. Well, weapons, really. Once inside the city, I said goodbye to the refugees we had traveled with. The non-fighting side of the Legion would help them adjust, give them a little money, but really, they were on their own. I suppose there's only so much we could do. I did wish there was somewhere else we could take them. Corbin can destroy people. Still, if they made it through years in infected territory, they must have been pretty tough. A lot of the other legionnaires think I care too much. <laughs> Fuck it. I don't know why they joined up if they don't care. It's because I'm Hanerian. They think, ultimately, I'm working for the revolution. The Wall. A History of the International Legion for Humanity by Akarn Vettigern. The Legion was created in the darkest depths of the infection crisis. Many people felt that governments simply weren't doing enough to stem the tide of the infection, too concerned with their own problems, worried their enemies would take advantage if they shifted resources to fight the infected. The Legion caught the spirit of the time amongst liberals and radicals, fighting for the human race and not for a flag. It's often forgotten that the first reinforcements the Aurelian Empire received were the nearly thousand members of the Legion, and despite what some have claimed, they came prepared with weapons and supplies. From the beginning, the Legion was very well organized and would in fact show up the Sacred Brotherhood and even some national armies in their preparedness. The Legion was open to anyone over 17, man or woman, regardless of race, religion, or politics. All they asked was a desire to fight for humanity. There were a few practical clauses to joining. Any previous association was banned, so there would be no barist brigades or mine workers' regiments, the idea being you were fighting for all of humankind. You promised to forego any ideas of plunder or profit, only subsisting on an allowance from the Legion. You promised to not get involved in politics while fighting. And finally, you promised to do the right thing for those who had already suffered in the infection crisis. These last two points would be of supreme importance in the actions of Lieutenant Chloe Vasker, her supporters claiming she fought for the rights and protections of those who had suffered in the crisis, and her enemies saying she brought her politics to oppose a king. At its peak, the Legion numbered over 10,000. But after the initial crisis and the major hordes had been dealt with, many people resigned and returned to their everyday lives. At the time of writing, membership stands at around 5,000, but less than 2,000 are actively serving on the border. 
The ride to the morgue was unpleasant, but quite short. Riding alongside a dead body in a small wagon was not why I'd joined the diplomatic service, and I was beginning to regret my gracious gesture when the wagon came to a halt. The body was manhandled rather indelicately by the morgue staff into the building and placed on a cold slab in a long room filled with other corpses on slabs. Most of the corpses were unidentified, and a regular stream of people passed through to see if a missing loved one was there. One of the staff also told me that they did get people who simply wanted to look at dead bodies. When I asked how many people did this, his answer was more than you'd think. To most, this would have been obvious, but I hadn't expected how cold it would be in the morgue. I wrapped my arms around me and stamped about the room. The staff seemed immune to the cold and were amused by my behavior. My few short hours spent in the morgue were illuminating as to the odd personages who worked in a morgue, but whether it was their nature or their work that made them so, I could not tell. Only one person seemed to take interest in Murray, and I recognized them immediately. Not personally, most of their face was hidden by their hood, but I recognized them by profession. Border guard. To call the border guards corrupt was to miss the point of them. They were meant to break the laws they were technically employed to enforce. The laws of each territory within the city varied enormously, and really, they only had one law in common. Nothing crosses the internal borders. If you lived in the Draven part of the city and you wanted Barris tea, you couldn't buy it from a shop in that territory. They had to export it, travel round the outside of the city, bring it through a Draven-controlled entrance and sell it. The same went for people. To get from Malachi Square to Kadeski Street, you couldn't simply walk the 100 feet that separated them, no. You had to leave the city and come back into it through the appropriate entrance. Given the size of Korriban, this was ridiculous and unworkable, and there was a huge black market in moving goods and people across the internal borders. So much that many people forgot the internal borders actually existed. The black market traders were partners with the border guards. It was said there wasn't a person in the city, from the lowest gutter snipe to the resident director of the Northern Expansion Company, who didn't break these laws. And that was the point. If the Barrist authorities wanted to detain someone, they had no need to concoct a reason to arrest them. They simply arrested them for breaking the border laws. The one saving grace of this system that prevented it being the worst kind of tyranny was the border guards themselves, all of whom were residents of the city, and they would only go so far, especially involving their fellow residents. Still, they walked round the city like they were lords, free to go anywhere they wanted without question. Everyone owed them favors, and it was not a good idea to get on their bad side. The border guard stopped next to each slab and cast a glance at the occupant before moving on, and did the same next to Murray, as well as looking at me. Admittedly, as I was still in my formal wear from the previous evening, I did stand out, but it was clear the guard was paying too much attention to me and Murray. I made the impulsive decision to follow them. As I made it into the corridor, the guard was already at the other end of it, and I chased after them. I burst outside, only to find myself attacked. The guard thrust me against the wall, a knife held against my throat. I finally got a clear look at the guard, and was surprised to learn they were a woman. The woman was Lotharan Medea, and indeed was a border guard, and she was very eager to know who I was. When I explained I worked with Murray, and just felt a countryman should be with him, she visibly relaxed but did not move the knife. She asked me if I knew who had murdered Murray, and I replied I thought it was probably just bad luck, a mugging that had gone wrong, or maybe someone had taken offense at his jokes. Medea did not look as sure. 
Korriban was a dangerous place, and certain parts of the city were rife with crime. In all honesty, we were lucky the soldiers had even bothered looking into who Murray was. If a body was found at the harbour, often it was just pushed into the water, so it was said. As to the soldiers solving the crime, well, they were soldiers. If they didn't catch someone in the act, it was unlikely they would find out. Murray was a somewhat important person, but you felt wary of pushing the issue with the soldiers, as they were likely to just pick someone out of the slums and declare them guilty. I asked Medea why she even cared about Murray. The border guard did not investigate murders. It turned out Medea had been one of the last people to see Murray alive. Two nights ago, she had taken him across the border. This had been a long-standing arrangement between the two of them for at least six months, and had been so he could easily see his mistress. Apparently, and Medea did not go into details, there were some legal problems that meant his mistress did not want to go into the Barris territory to see Murray. It turned out Medea felt a little responsible, like maybe she had taken Murray to his death. An extract from an interview of retired border guard Mishen Prast. Can you tell me about working as a border guard in Korriban? Korriban was a great city back then, but great just means it's full of opportunities. The more people, the more money, the more scams, and the more crimes. That's just how it is. And if you think your police, your judges, and your government aren't getting something out of it, <laughs> you're just naive. Maybe there's a handful of honest people, but even they won't do anything to stop their less-than-honest colleagues. Basically, being a border guard was the easiest way to make money there ever was. You didn't have to look for it. People came to you. They begged you for help. And even when you charged them for what you did, they were still grateful for the help. Every year, I made six times my actual salary from bribes and gifts. As for the work, you'd wander the city, checking the border walls, occasionally asking to see someone's papers, to make sure they hadn't illegally crossed over. I think in five years of doing the job, I arrested half a dozen people and... That was only when there was such obvious shenanigans that you just couldn't do nothing. It wasn't that we needed a look of respectability, but there were limits, you know? Not everyone liked us. Some people didn't actually see what the point of us was. Just another person you had to bribe, and in the city, whatever you did, you were bribing people twice a day. I tried not to be too greedy, and I tried to do some good where I could. There were things people needed, after all. It wasn't all chocolate and brandy. Medicine could take a long time to get through the official channels. Our reputation? How do you mean? Oh, yes. <laughs> a lot of people thought us cowards, who would run at the first sign of trouble and, when anything actually needed doing, called in the soldiers. And, well, that's half true. We certainly got agitated when necessary. Getting involved with the riots. <laughs> Should you trust them? Oh no, I wouldn't do that. Having done a little of my own research before encountering Orente, I can confirm this portrait is essentially accurate. I don't know if the word corrupt is entirely appropriate to them, as so thoroughly did corruption run through the organization, it would feel a little inadequate. What is certainly true is that they acted as a necessary counterbalance to the ludicrous laws concerning trade and transportation within the city, and if matters had solely been left to the governments of those who claimed to rule the city, would have ground to a halt. 
Certainly, Orente would have been well aware of their reputation, and I cannot believe he would have simply blindly trusted Medea. Anyway, we shall leave on this cliffhanger of sorts, something historians rarely get to enjoy. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY, G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minx. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minx. John Fennigan was played by Stuart Moyer. Find Stuart on Twitter at Reduxist. That's R-E-D-U-X-I-S-T. Mission Prast was played by Tal Mania. Find Tal on Twitter at Starplanes or on their website talmania.co.co. That's T-A-L-M-I-N-E-A-R dot C-A-R-R-D dot com.